Amen. Good evening, everybody. And uh, welcome. Oh, man, guys, even the 8 o'clock is more lively than you. How's it going? Oh, praise God. Like <laughs> there's life. All right. Uh, I know it's winter and things seem a little bit cold, but hopefully the Word of God will warm us up. Right. And uh, Robin, I want to promise you that that water is getting warm. Right. We've got a heater in there. Um, if you're new, just want to say welcome. It is great to have you here at Connect. Uh, you join us as we are somewhat into a series in 1 Corinthians called The, the, the Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. All right? uh, and it's been a great series so far. Really been challenged. It's been deep. It's been rich. And tonight, hopefully, is going to be no exception. So we're going to, we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 to 13 together. That's where we're at. So you can turn there so long. But just want to preface what we're about to read by setting it up and saying these few things about Paul and his heart for the church. Right? 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Church, Paul had a heart for the people who made up the church in Corinth. He had a heart for those early century believers. He had a heart for the church. He had a pastoral concern for them. And it had come to his attention that this church was struggling. They were struggling with divisions. They were struggling with sects forming and developing within the church. And the church was on the verge of fracturing. They were on the precipice of falling over the edge and really destroying what was there to honor God and what existed. It was a fledgling church. And really what was at the heart and at the source of their problem was pride. Pride was a real issue for this church. And pride is an absolute killer. It's such a killer. Pride will keep you from becoming all that God has intended you to be. Pride is that thing that creeps into the church and, and runs the risk of robbing the church of its power, robbing you of power. As you become proud and self-righteous, so you miss out on the things of God. And Paul knows this. And so he's writing to this church to say to him, hey guys, this thing we have to deal with and it needs to be dealt with now and it needs to be dealt with seriously. And so that's why we have the title of this message called The Pride Before the Fall. We've all heard that saying before. But this is exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were so proud and they were so blind to it and they were starting to ruin what actually was about or supposed to be for the glory of God. Additionally, if you think about proud people, right? Proud people, incredibly arrogant at times. Proud people can be incredibly judgmental. And Paul was experiencing this personally in his life. The church in Corinth, they were ranking their pastors, right? They were so proud, they were ranking their pastors, saying, I follow Paul, or no, 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 I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. And because one group of people followed Peter and not Paul, and uh, some followed Paul and not Peter, and others um, followed Apollos, they were sort of against each other and at odds with one another. Like people who support different sports teams and somehow have animosity towards each other. What is that? Did someone say Arsenal? Okay. Pride is a terrible thing, right? And so, and so this church was, was, was not only judging the people within the church, but also judging people who were given oversight over them. So judging Paul, judging Peter, judging Apollos. Things were becoming incredibly divisive. And so Paul's job here in 1 Corinthians is to write to this church and to bring correction and really to dig down deep and unroot the roots that were causing them to be so proudful, so arrogant, so self-righteous. They were causing them to fight and to fracture the church. 
I want you to notice as we start reading how Paul sees himself and where he finds his identity. Because that's key to dealing with pride and it's key to dealing with judgment when it comes your way from proud people, arrogant people. So let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 from verse 1 through to verse 13. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the hearts. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? Another way of saying that is, what is different in you? What about you is different to anyone else? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you become kings. And oh, that you would or that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all men, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. It's a really rich passage of Scripture, full of rebuke and correction, and full of some really useful stuff. Paul starts his address in chapter 4 by dealing with something that he's dealt with in chapter 3, and he wraps it up and he says, I want you to have a proper perspective of us, us apostles. And this same perspective that you have of us, I want you to have of yourselves. I want you to have of one another. It's because you have an incorrect perspective of who we are and who you are that you're proud and you're arrogant and divisions are starting to form within the church. He says this, this is how you are to see us. This is who we are. We are nothing but servants and stewards of the secrets and the mysteries of God. Now, when Paul chooses the word for servant, there are a number of different words that he could have used in the original language, which is Greek, but he chooses this one, it's hypetitas, and basically what that means is it's a word that was used to refer to a rower in the lower galleys of a ship, or the hull of a ship, rowers who were chained together at the feet and who were rowing to the beat of a drum. Essentially, slaves in those slave ships or in those warships Men were captured and used basically the engine room of the ship. And so Paul says, that's who I am. That's what I am. And by the way, that's who you are, church in Corinth, and that's who we are, Connect Church. Men and women who are in chains for the gospel, who are on a ship 
rowing according to the beat of the drum of our master, who's Jesus and who's at the helm. And he's taking the church in the direction he wants to go. And Paul says, I'm nothing more but someone whose hand is to the oar and who's rowing according to the beat of my master. So he uses this word. He says, I'm nothing but a servant. So how can you elevate me or Apollos or Peter or anyone else within your church? How can you think of yourself as more than that? This is who I am. This is how you should regard us. But he doesn't stop there. He introduces a new word. He introduces this word steward. And what is a steward? Well, a steward is someone who's been given something of incredible value that belongs not to them but to the master. That's what a steward is. A steward is someone who's just taking something and stewarding it and making sure that they use it wisely and look after it. But it never belongs to them. It belongs to the master. And what Paul is saying is everything we've been given, everything you've been given is from God. And we are nothing but stewards, slaves and stewards to the king. How can you elevate us? Paul's crying out to the Corinthian church. It's not about bowing down to us. It's not about making us higher or lower than one another. We must certainly composition us above Jesus. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. So what does that mean? Paul says, this is how you should regard us. We're slaves. We're in chains for Jesus. We're just rowing the boat. We're taking care of what he's given us, but we're also taking care of the mysteries of God. What does that mean? It's a very interesting thing to think about that. Well, Paul gives us a hint. In fact, he makes it, in fact, he makes it very clear. If you read Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, For I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, in the Old Testament, you had guys like the prophets who God would speak to his people through. And slowly but surely, over the centuries, God would drip feed bits of information about the coming Messiah. He would drip feed bits of knowledge about him and about what, how, how he was going to redeem people and who the Messiah was going to be. For example, you would read in Micah chapter 2 about where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 53, you would read about how the Messiah was going to suffer. All throughout the Psalms, you would read about the, the ministry and the lifestyle of the coming Messiah. But over centuries, you had these little puzzle pieces, if you will. And these puzzle pieces were put on the table and, and guys were trying to work this thing out. It was quite a mystery to them. And they're trying to piece the puzzle pieces together, but they never had the picture on the box. So it was quite difficult. It was a mystery to God's people. And Paul says, we live on this side of the cross. On this side of the cross, we have an added advantage of having the picture on the box. And the picture is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. He's come. And God has revealed Jesus to us. And so the puzzle pieces come together. And living on this side of the cross, we know that the mysteries of God, according to Paul in the book of Colossians, have been revealed to us in Jesus. There's no more mystery. There's nothing that can't be known to us that hasn't been revealed to us through Jesus. The mystery's been solved. It's been revealed. And so what Paul is saying when he says, I'm just a, a slave and a servant and a steward of the mysteries of God, what he's saying is my ministry exists and my life exists to make known Jesus to people. It's to shine the light of Jesus into this world. It's to go and to preach the gospel and to tell people that the mystery of God is revealed in Jesus and there's nothing greater to know than that. My entire life is about telling people about Jesus 
and making him known and bringing him glory. So he says to the Colossian church, just a bit of a side note, there's a lot of teaching that goes around nowadays that would suggest that you can know deeper and more secret things from God outside of the scriptures. I just want to say be careful of people who teach you that. And people who say to you, I have knowledge of God and I have found secret things of God that can't be known in the scriptures. I want to say to you, scripture is what God has determined to reveal to us. Does that mean that we can't know more about God and there isn't more about God to be known? Absolutely not. But what God has determined for us to know has been revealed in the scriptures and we cannot go beyond that. And so anything God reveals to somebody must be tested through scripture and by scripture. And if it's not there, it is not from God. So there's a lot of theology, a lot of teaching that would say we need to deep, dig deep into the secret things of God. New things, special revelation. There is no such thing. Any teaching that comes apart from the word of God is demonic and is there to throw you off. Just a bit of a side note. Paul says the mysteries of God have been revealed. And by the way, that's the whole point of the book of 1 John, if you want to go read that. God has made known to us what he wants to make known to us through his word and through the person of Jesus. There's nothing more to be known for the start of eternity. So Paul carries on. He says, Moreover, it's required of a steward that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. See, the amazing thing about a steward and being a steward is this there's only one person's opinion that matters, and that's the master's. You don't have to worry about anyone else's opinion. And if you've been in a place where you've been judged, and you feel like what you're doing for God is being put under a microscope by people, and the opinions of people are affecting the way that you see yourself and the way you do your ministry, there is freedom for you when you step into a place where you care more about what God has to say about you than what people do. This is Paul's charge to the Corinthian church. He's saying, you guys are judging me, but I want you to know you need to stop. And even if you do, I care very little about what you think about me. In fact, you are unqualified to judge. I'm unqualified to judge myself, he says. So if I can't judge me and you can't judge me, doesn't mean I'm not judged. Doesn't mean I'm not going to be held accountable because a steward is held accountable by the master. But it's the master who judges. I am going to be judged and it's God who's going to judge me. And your judgment versus his judgment or yours pales into insignificance. He says, I'm not thereby acquitted. God judges me because he's the only one qualified to do so. So this is so important for us to understand and embrace. This will change your life when you get hold of it. Because what Paul is reminding the, one, the, the Corinthians of is that his identity is in Christ. His purpose, his meaning, his reason for existing is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it is only the voice of Jesus that matters. I think we get so caught up and tied up in knots because we listen to people more often than we listen to God. We listen to the praises and the perspectives of men. We either are puffed up by men or we're broken down by people. We so long and hunger for the affirmation of people and what they can see in us versus what God sees in us and what he says about us. And if we allow ourselves to be free as a church and as people and as individuals before the Lord, to hear and to listen only to what God has to say about us, there'd be so much more significant stuff we would do. We'd walk in freedom that has incredible potential to have you experience stuff that God wants for you. I think this clarity of identity is one of the reasons Paul is such a powerful warrior for the kingdom of God. It's because he's not concerned about what people think. It's, it's not to say he, he doesn't care about people. 
But when it comes to his ministry and when it comes to what he's called to do, when it comes to the motive of his heart and his intent, he cares more about what God sees and what God thinks. But God sees justly and rightly and perfectly. He's concerned about what God thinks as he goes about his ministry. Do you realize how freeing that is if you step into that space? That's why Paul says to the church in Corinth this thing after after he said this, I I don't need to be judged by you because I'm judged by God. And by the way, you're going to be judged by God, not by one another. Therefore, he's like, stop. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What he's saying is this. There's going to come a time where God will reveal the intentions and the motives of people's hearts. But as you go around your business for the kingdom of God, don't go judging other people and their motives and their intent. Allow them to fulfill what God has called them to do. And partner with them. Encourage them. Let's spur one another on to love and to good deeds and allow God to judge the motives of the heart when he comes because he's the perfect judge. This is a throwback to chapter 3 when Paul was saying that each believer will have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for what they've done with what he's given to them. And I hope that you know that there's a difference between the way an unbeliever is going to be judged and the way a believer is going to be judged. We're going to be judged according to our righteousness, according to the good things that we've done with what God has given to us. So the believer's judgment is different. We're going to stand before Jesus one day, and for those of us who have truly given our life to him, he's not going to hold anything against us, because to do so would be unjust. Jesus has already taken the punishment. He's already bore the burden. He's already paid the price. He's already been condemned on our behalf. And so when we stand before Jesus one day, he's going to say, this is what I gave you. What did you do with it? Oh, you did very little. There's very little reward. But you're still going to be rewarded. God's word says that some of us are going to enter in heaven, enter into heaven smelling like smoke. Shinshel spoke about that last week. You know, in other words, everything we've built with on the foundation of Christ was with chaff and with wheat and in precious stuff. Well, not precious stuff. It's going to be burnt away. You're just going to have the foundation left. Some of us are going to have little rewards. Some of us are going to have massive reward. But the point is, it's going to be a rewards ceremony. And the reason why God does this is because he loves to reward the faithful. He loves to honor the honorable. But he's the one who judges our motives. He's the one who judges whether we are building with precious stones and gems or building with straw and hay and chaff. So don't go around judging one another. Don't go around being God and playing God in the lives of other people. Do not use your standards to assess the value or the significance of somebody's work and what they're doing. That's what Paul's saying to the 1 Corinthians about how they're judging each other and about how they're judging him. When you do that, it's only as a result of the overflow of pride and arrogance in your life to think that you are somehow qualified to judge the work of somebody as they go about doing that for the kingdom. And that will rip the church apart. So then Paul says, see us as slaves, see us as stewards, and allow no place for arrogance in your life. Arrogance is absolutely no place. We are unqualified to judge. I just want to share this quick illustration, the story of how unable we are to judge one another. It's a story of a, of, a, of a young couple who just bought a new home, and so they were very excited, and so they moved into their new home. 
And uh, it was a double-story building, and they were having breakfast one day upstairs around the table, and uh, this, um, this room that they were in sort of overlooked the neighbor's yard. And as they were having breakfast the first morning, so the lady who lived next door to them came outside with her washing, and she was busy hanging up her washing, and uh, the wife said to her husband over the table, she said, wow, look at that lady. We are new to this area, and um, I really just want to go introduce myself to her because I see that she probably needs some help with doing her washing. It doesn't look very clean. The whites are not so white, and the colors are not so bright. And so I think as a way of introducing myself, I'm going to go and help her make sure that she can get her washing clean. Maybe she needs a new washing machine. Maybe you can fix it. And this goes on for some time. The next morning, same thing. The lady feels very sorry for the lady next door. She comes and hangs up her washing. The whites are quite dull, and the colors are not so bright. And the conversation keeps happening around the table about how they need to go and help this lady uh, make sure that her washing looks a little bit better than what it is. Anyway, this goes on for quite some time. About a month later, lady comes upstairs. Wife comes upstairs, and she has breakfast with her husband around the table. And as she looks out over the window, she sees all of a sudden it's like an Omo advert, right? The whites are white, and the colors are bright. And there's something different about this lady's washing. All of a sudden, she seems to have got it right. And this lady says to her husband across the table, absolutely fantastic. Maybe she's got rid of that washing powder she used to make on her own. Maybe she's bought a new washing powder. Maybe she's got a new washing machine. Because look, her whites are incredibly bright and her colors are shining brilliantly. And the husband just smiles and he says, My dear, I don't think it's anything that she's done differently. What you don't know is this morning I woke up and I cleaned our window for the first time. It's just a great illustration to show just how we can judge people. And how we can sometimes have an in perfect perspective on what someone else is doing because we haven't cleaned the window of our own lives. So there's no place for judging. But does that mean we never judge? Because if you've been quite discerning, you would know that this letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthian church is one of judgment. It's a rebuke. It's a hard sharpening of the iron. So it seems as though Paul's been hypocritical. Don't judge. Wait until God comes. Then judge. But as he's writing to them, he's busy doing the thing it seems like he's telling them not to do. So do we judge or don't we judge? And the answer is we are called to judge certain things. God's word says we are to judge and to rebuke and to encourage and to sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But here's the kicker. We are called to judge, but not according to our own standards. We're called to judge according to the word of God. When we judge, we're not to judge hypocritically, which is what the Corinthians were doing. And they were judging things beyond their realm or beyond their mandate. They were judging people's hearts and intent and competency to do what God had called them to do. That's why Paul says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So what is Paul saying? When you judge, let's keep it biblical. When you call somebody out, when you challenge somebody, as iron sharpens iron, when you engage with somebody in love and in grace with the truth, make sure that it's biblical. Make sure that it's according to the word. Don't go outside of the word and make darn sure you're living it yourself. And when you try and understand and when you 
really get your head around what God's word is calling us to do as believers. When we are called to judge, it's really called to make a right thinking. It's really a call to think critically. It's, it's, it's a call to think logically and to evaluate according to the word of God. We're meant to do that. Half the reason why a lot of Christians don't grow is because they have nobody in their life who's bold enough to be able to speak the truth in love to them. Because we've been told it's not politically correct to offend anybody. And trust me, being sharpened is offensive. And your pride is going to hate that. And we don't like to not be liked. And we haven't learned the art of allowing a brother and a sister to bring rebuke. We prefer sometimes the kiss of the enemy who will tell us what we want to hear just so that they are liked and we feel comfortable. So we're meant to judge. But often when you engage with people, and I can imagine that this is what the Corinthians did to Paul, when you challenge somebody, and as he's writing this letter, I can imagine them reading it, them saying, Paul, oh, be careful. Don't judge lest ye be judged. We love to quote that. We love to challenge people with that. I've tried to use that in my own life, but I've been engaged with by people because of sin in my own life. I'm like, oh, just be careful you don't judge me. Otherwise, you're going to be judged. Judge with the same standards with which you want to be judged. People like to use that as an all-encompassing rule. But the Bible doesn't say don't judge. It says don't judge hypocritically. It's like wash the window first before you try and look into my life. So wash the window first before you call my laundry dirty. We like to quote Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. We stop there. We quote that. We don't follow on from that. And what Jesus says after that is this. You're a hypocrite if you do that. But first, you need to take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, take the speck out of your brother's eye. But make sure that there isn't a log in yours. Think correctly. Think critically. Judge. Make discernment according to the word. Don't go beyond the word. And if you see a brother or sister stepping out of line, come to them in grace and with love and make sure that in your own life, if you're telling them not to steal the sweets off the master's table, make sure you're not eating the cake in the kitchen before you do that. So that's how we judge rightly. This is what Paul's doing with the Corinthian church. He's applying scripture to where they're at. He's challenging them in the spirit according to the scripture. He's not going beyond what has been written. But we often tend to follow human wisdom. God says, stay to the scriptures. Challenge people according to the scriptures. But don't go beyond them. When you go beyond the word of God and you judge somebody and challenge somebody, it's really showing arrogance and pride in your life. Thinking that you're qualified to judge when only God is. This principle of staying in the word of God will keep us from being, as Paul says about the Corinthians, puffed up in favor of one against the other. How can you possibly be arrogant when we put Jesus first and allowed him to judge? How can you possibly be arrogant and elevate one person over the next when you've allowed Scripture to first purify you and challenge you and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to clean you and to get rid of all the hypocrisy in your life? You will then see very clearly the work of Jesus in somebody else's and you'll be humbled. It's all about God. It's not about us. So let me ask you this question. As I was preparing, I was challenged with this question myself. How are you doing with pride and arrogance in your life? How are you doing? When last did you think to yourself, I deserve that thing. I deserve that promotion. I deserve that recognition. I deserve that house, that car, that job. I deserve that, that thing that I desire, whatever it is in your life. Paul says, I don't even think that way. 
I don't care about the perspective of men and the opinions of men. I care only about God's approval. I don't need the things of this world. I just need the things of the kingdom. Because he knows there'll come a day where he'll be judged according to what he's done with what God has given to him. And God will richly reward him. He doesn't think he deserves anything. He deserved nothing. But everything he has comes from the Lord. And so that's what he pushes into in verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, how are you different to anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? If you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not? See, a lot of the arrogance and pride that we see in our culture today and in people's lives is as a result of them thinking that they deserve what they've got. And that somehow it's because of how great they are that they've been given it or that they've got it or that they've earned it and it's got nothing to do with God and His blessing in their life. Your talent is from God. Your wealth is from God. Your faith is from God. Your life is from God. In fact, the very next breath you breathe is from God. In the words of Job, naked you came into this world and naked you're going to leave. Then Paul gets quite sarcastic with them. And I wouldn't recommend this, right? You need to use sarcasm in a very clever and godly way in order to rebuke people. But what he does is he digs down and tries to uproot the roots of their pride. And he uses sarcasm brilliantly to expose the absurdity of their belief and their thinking as they create sex and divisions within their church. He says this in verse 8, You have already got all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might reign with you. In sarcasm, Paul says to the Corinthian church, you're so self-sufficient, you're so rich. What need do you have of anybody's instruction? What need do you have of anything that we can give you? You've already arrived. Apparently, you've made it. You guys are kings already. You think you've reached full maturity. You think that you're ruling and reigning, but in actual fact, you're not. You're more like the Laodicean church, Paul says to these guys. This is what Jesus says about that church in Revelation. Because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This church in Corinth were fighting divisions and fighting fracturing and splitting apart because they were so proud they thought they had everything they needed and they thought that their ability to judge was sufficient. Paul says, we wish that you Corinthians were reigning and ruling as kings because then we would be with you. But in fact, the opposite is true. He says about himself and the other apostles, we have been exhibited as last of all, like men sentenced to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. What he says here is the Corinthian church seems to be right at the front of some procession, some victory procession, as if they've made it. In the old days, what would happen is conquering kings would go and conquer some land or some other city or some other province, and they would capture all uh, the, the men of war, the prisoners of war, and they would put them in chains, and they would put them at the end of the procession. And the procession would march through the victorious town of the king or the city where the king stays, and people would celebrate and cheer on their soldiers. And then right at the end of the procession were all the prisoners of war in chains. And then people would spit on them and jeer at them and chuck stuff at them. And people knew where they were going. They would be led to the Colosseum or to the entertainment arena of that day. And they'd be used for sport. They'd be fed to wild animals. Or they'd be used by the gladiators as like, yeah, pincushions. Basically, there were men who were there to die. 
didn't die in war, but you're going to die as sport for us. And Paul says, that's what it's like for us. You guys seem to have made it. He goes on in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you seem to be so wise. We are weak. You are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Do you see how the Apostle Paul and the other apostles responded to mistreatments? They give sacrificially. And the result is that they're like the scum of the world, the refuse of the earth. The original word, the New King James uses this, this idea of being an off-scouring. And I shared this at the 10. I'm going to share it now, but it really grosses me out. The idea is that you get, it's like, you know that stuff that gets stuck to a pot? Right? When you scrub it off and it soaks in the water, right? And you've got to try and clean it. And the worst thing for me is scrambled egg, right? When you do scrambled egg, I can eat it out the pot. It can even have bacon and whatever else in it. And it's lucky you can eat it. But then there's something about it moving from the stove to the sink. And then when water gets put in there, somehow it becomes like, just suffer. It's terrible. And then you've got to try and like wipe it off and then it gets stuck in the drain and you've got to like wash it with your fingers. Right? You know what I'm talking about. That's like it. Paul says, Paul says that's, what I've be- that's what we've become. And, and I want to say this, church, that's what we are going to become to the world when we do the things of God in the way God has called us to do them. Because there's something about salt in a wound that burns. There's something about light in the eyes of people who've been in darkness for a long time that's offensive and that's painful. And we're going to be seen by the world like that. We have missed it as a church if we become friends with the world. If the world says to the church, well done, you're doing a good job, we're happy with you, you carry on doing what you're doing, we have missed it. Because our war is against principalities and powers and the forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. It's against the demonic. And the demonic is not happy with the church of God. As soon as it is happy, we are in the wrong place. And so you know, if you're expecting as a church to be treated well for doing the things of God, that you've allowed some of the thinking and the philosophy of this world to enter your thinking. Jesus says, we are going to be poorly treated, beaten, homeless, reviled, persecuted, and slandered. And when that happens, where's the room for pride? So the Corinthian church were missing something because they weren't having this stuff happen to them. Paul says, this is happening to us and we're getting it right. We are humble. We've been humbled all the time. You guys are so self-righteous. You think you've got everything. You don't need to learn a thing. You're friends with the world. And you, stop it. I think we've been taught that it connects as well. And we need to learn that lesson from the Corinthian church. And we're not those things, right? We're not the scum of the world. We're not the refuse of the earth. We are sons and daughters of God. And one day we're going to be present at the great reversal when we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he says, well done, my good and faithful servants. Come and receive your inheritance. On that day, what has been regarded as the refuse of the world and the scum of the earth and the scrambled egg off scouring, God is going to reveal the sons and daughters of his. And it's going to be a great day on that day to stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servants. So the challenge to us as a church from Paul to the Corinthians is get rid of pride. Deal with that stuff in your life. Repent of where you've judged people. Repent of self-loathing or self-exaltation. Allow the Lord to develop and to cultivate peace in your heart through a correct understanding of who you are and what you're called to do. And then we will be effective as a church. Amen? I'm going to pray. I'm going to hand over to Karen. Karen, if you can come and join me. And the worship team, you can come up as well.
Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the blessing of being able to sit under your word and to be encouraged and to be challenged. Father, I want to pray that you would pour out your spirit over us as a church and as people. And that we would in no way allow room for pride in our lives. But that, Lord, we'd be humbled. Servants and stewards of the Most High God. May we exist for your glory and for your kingdom alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.